What's the first thing you should do when the school holidays begin? Suggestions? Sleep? Yes, other suggestions? Have a banana. You should check the school bags for bananas. The first thing you should do when the school holidays begins is empty the school bags. If you've got kids in your house, you should check the school bags, get rid of the food, get rid of the scraps, get rid of the fruit. If you don't, when the next term comes along, you'll find something quite unpleasant. Uh, We had this experience uh, because the way term two sort of finished two weeks early and didn't go back five weeks after term three didn't start, was it five weeks into term three, something like that? We suddenly had in the middle of the year a a gap unexpectedly. In every school holidays, we're very good at checking to empty the school bags, but because of the way the school term finished and didn't start again for a few more weeks, uh, I think about a day before school went back, Archer came to me and he said, I've got a banana in my school bag and it's been there about 10 weeks at this point and it had gone awful. (laughs) It was a disgusting mess. What started out as a fine piece of fruit turned into a mushy, smelly, mouldy, disgusting mess. And Today in Mark chapter 5, we're going to meet a man whose bananas had gone very, very bad. And it attracted all kinds of very unpleasant pests. So this morning, if you would like to follow along with us, we've got the the sermon notes there uh, to talk about there. Mark chapter 5 is where we're going this morning. The picture of Jesus versus the legion. In one corner, the carpenter from Galilee. In the other corner, a thousand angry, worst creatures you could imagine. A thousand of the deep depths of hell. Who will win? Who will win? We're working our way through Mark's gospel, and Jesus has been uh, teaching by the lake, is where we've been in chapter 4, where we've been these last few weeks. And as we've said before, what has Jesus been teaching? Let's read it all together. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So when we see Jesus teaching, he's teaching on this theme, the coming kingdom of God. And what people should do in response, we should repent, turn away from our sins, and we should believe, we should trust. This is the kingdom coming and the kingdom being demonstrated. So chapter 4 has parables and different stories. And then chapter 4 ends with with, with Jesus in the boat and the great storm coming along and Jesus demonstrating who he is, the great king. The kingdom of God has come and Jesus is the king and he says to the storm, stop. And he says to the waves, be still. And they obeyed him. And his disciples were afraid. They were terrified. Who is this man? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Chapter 5 begins immediately following that story. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. If you've got your Bibles there, your Bible might have a different word there rather than Gerasenes. It might say Gadarenes or something different. It might say the Gergesenes. These are all different names of towns in this part of the world. So here's a little picture of what the lake sort of looks like. And the the region of the Gerasenes is down there on the southwest side. Um, Southeast even. Thank you. Southeast. The southeastern side of, of the lake. 
And we need to remind ourselves that these stories of Jesus are happening in real places with real people, real history. Uh, we know that these things, we can go and dig up the, the, the archaeology and all the rest of it. So we know these things existed. Here's this area, another slightly different picture. Uh, Galilee's sort of up west of the Sea of Galilee. The Decapolis or this region of the Gerasenes is down southeast of the Sea of Galilee. Jerusalem and Judea are to the south. Uh, this area is called the Decapolis or the Ten Towns. It's an area of mixed peoples. There are lots of Greek language speakers. There are Gentiles. There are Jews mixed in all together. And there's likely a Roman garrison as well. It's a good place for the Romans to have a legion or two stationed because this is the Roman Empire at the time of Jesus. It's hard to see on this map, but they've sort of expanded rapidly. 200 years before, they had basically just Italy and a little bit of North Africa and bits of Spain because they'd beaten up the Carthaginians. And over the next 200 years before Jesus, the Romans have expanded and expanded and expanded and conquered most of the world. Julius Caesar has conquered Gaul in about 40 BC, and then the Romans have come and expanded all across the world. They captured Egypt at about the same time. It's a good place for a Roman legion to be stationed on this sort of eastern side of Judea, where it says Judea there. Here's my pointer. Here's my opportunity. Look, see this bit that says Judea? That's sort of where we're talking about here, the region of the Gadocenes. This way over here in what is Iraq and Iran are the Persians. And they're the last great empire standing to face the Romans. The Romans have conquered all the countries around them, and it's the Persians are the next on the line. And so if the Persians decide to attack into the Romans, they'll come down through here, because this is all desert. You don't want to come through here. They'll come down into here, into Egypt. If the Persians can take out Egypt, well, they cut off all the grain supplies going to Rome, and they can starve the Romans into submission. So the Romans knew this. So this part of the world is strongly fortified and strongly defended by legions, lots of armies. Why are we talking so much about the Romans? Well, because we're going to talk about some pigs in a minute, and we're going to hear the word legion in a few verses. So that just gives you some of the picture of where we are in the world and what's going on at this time. This is a garrison frontier sort of place where the Roman legions are stationed to protect their empire against the Persians who could attack at any time. Into this story, into this situation, we have an encounter between two men. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. Jesus encounters this man, or this man encounters Jesus. This man came from the tombs to meet him. We get a couple of verses in the next few verses describing the man, his history, his problems the way the people had tried to deal with him, his strength, his pain, his torment. So we read, this man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. All human efforts to deal with this man and his problems have failed. All attempts to help, or at least to restrain him, have failed. There is nothing more that the people of that region can do, either to stop him or to help him or anything, and it must be very discouraging. I know it's very discouraging, uh, because for many years I worked with people like this, 
trying to help people who were in destructive situations through addiction or homelessness or all sorts of different problems. And I remember it was probably about this time last year, um, the Salvation Army Church where we were last year, uh, our car park, our back car park was actually the Aldi car park. So the Aldi, the supermarket, was right behind our church building. And we heard one morning that a man had uh, been sleeping rough in orange in winter and had died on the Aldi car park um, the Aldi loading dock. He'd been found dead there. I think it was a Sunday morning even. And that broke our hearts to know that someone had died right next to our building. But then the following, about the next Tuesday, um, I went to the minister's group of the town and the ministers came together and somebody said, oh, the man who died at the Aldi was this man. I'll call him Bob. That's not his name. But it was Bob. And I just went, oh. I knew Bob. I'd worked with Bob. I'd tried to help Bob for years. I'd prayed with him. And as we went around the table, all the different ministers in town knew Bob and had worked with Bob and had helped Bob. And he'd come and asked for food or come and ask for whatever. And we'd, we'd done so much for Bob over the years. And his addiction just kept on driving him back to the streets. So he'd get cleaned up for a little while and then he'd go back to the streets and and it broke all of our hearts in that room to know that we all knew him. We'd all helped him in our own way. We'd all worked with him for years. And then to find out that he'd basically died sleeping on a loading dock. It was really, really distressing for us. Uh, and at his church service, probably every denomination was represented at his funeral. Uh, and every church, Everybody got up and said, look, we knew him. He was a good bloke. He just couldn't beat the demons his alcohol addiction that kept driving him back to the streets. It's very discouraging when your best efforts aren't enough. But the, the, the thing that that man kept on choosing to do, the things that he kept driven, being driven to do, we, we couldn't help him. We couldn't solve his problems. But back to this man. Back to this man here meeting Jesus. As bad as he is, as far gone as he is, he has enough within him. He's got enough say. He's got enough control to recognize Jesus from a distance and to run towards him. Here is a man with all of his problems, with all of the demons, all the things, all the voices, whatever that's going on him. He had them. He had these demons inside him, but they didn't have him. He had all these things inside him, but he still had enough say, enough control to say, there's a man who can help me. I must get to Jesus. I must get to Jesus. Perhaps he had enough that the demons inside him started squawking about Jesus, that he went, well, if the demons don't like him, I've got to get to him. If the demons want me to run this way, I better go that way towards Jesus. And so this man made a choice and ran towards Jesus. Continue to read on. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Jesus recognizes straight away the problem the man's got and gives the command to get the demon out. And this prompts a whole lot of shouting and begging. The demon screaming at the top of his lungs, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Who is speaking here? Is it the impure spirits? Is it the man? Is it a bit of both? We can't really tell. We've seen in other accounts of impure spirits so far in Mark's gospel that having these things cast out is upsetting, 
painful. Certainly there's a lot of shouting. Perhaps the man is concerned that if the impure spirits are forced out at once, it will be incredibly painful. Or perhaps he's concerned that Jesus will leave them in there and that his torture will continue. Or perhaps just being near Jesus is torture for the impure spirits, therefore the man. And so they want Jesus to get back in his boat and leave. These are all possible options. Whatever the reason, the request of this person or the demons or whatever the shouting is enough for Jesus to stop and ask a question. And this is the first and only time in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus will have a conversation with a demon and it's only one sentence, one question. What is your name? Jesus wants more information. What exactly is he dealing with here? He wants to know what's going on for this man. My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. Problems there for our English language. How can he reply, we? My name is many, but he's not making much sense, but he's talking about the legions. My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. So we need to pause for a moment to talk about this word, legion. Uh, for us, legion just means many, lots. That's not, a, not originally what the word meant. The word in Latin is legio, legion, uh, so, and it means a selection or a choosing. The Romans, when they went to war, they were the, one of the first republics. Uh, they would gather all the men of a certain age in the village and say, right, we're going to war, we need so many men out of the town to go to war. And they would choose the best. Well, they, would choose, they would look for volunteers, and because people don't tend to volunteer to go and kill themselves, they would choose, they would select them. And so the name for the legions became Legio Legion, a selection, a choosing, the best of the best. The best a village would have to offer would go off to fight the war. And this was different to how other kings and kingdoms would fight. The Roman way of making war, choosing the best of the best, the bravest, the strongest, and the most numerous. Because the agreement was if you go and fight for the Roman Republic, you only have to fight for a year and then you get to go home. So people would say, okay, well, I can handle that, and they'd go off and fight for a year. And the Romans could recruit vast armies. And their organization led to the defeat of the Carthaginians, which I talked about before, and began conquering the world. And they conquered bits of Greece. Uh, but after a while, the Roman Republic got too hard to keep having volunteer soldiers, so they began uh, hiring professional soldiers because their people didn't want to go and die in the desert for no apparent reason. And so they'd pay people to do it instead. But the way we would pay the Roman soldiers would say, if you serve 20 years for us, we'll give you your own plot of land. The problem with that is, in order to keep getting more plots of land, you have to keep on conquering your neighbours. And so the Roman war machine became a war machine. We have Julius Caesar and Pompey and the civil wars, the conquest of Egypt and Palestine and the Roman Empire keeps on going, gets all the way to Scotland. And when they got to Scotland, they gave up, didn't they, John? No one wants to conquer Scotland. It's too hard. But the Roman legion is the method and the symbol of this imperial oppression. At this stage, the word has become, rather than being select. Uh, a, a selection or a choosing, the word just means violence and anger and conquest. This Pax Romana, the Roman peace, 
is enforced with swords and spears and crucifixion. And this man says, I've got a legion of demons inside of me. And then we have the pigs. What's with the pigs? A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. What's with the pigs? Well, pigs, they're not kosher. Jews shouldn't be eating pigs. It's against the Old Testament law for Jewish people to have pigs. As I said before, this is a region of the Gerasenes, the Decapolis, the Ten Towns. They're not all Jewish people. They're scattered in between each other. They're all mixed in. There are Roman garrisons nearby. And the Romans eat pigs. They eat lots of bacon. And a Roman legion would eat lots of pigs. And so the demons are begging Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. I want to point out that the demons have no power here. It doesn't matter if there's a thousand demons or ten thousand demons or a million demons, they have no power over Jesus. They're begging. They're asking for permission. They're asking to be allowed. As we read in the next verse, he gave them permission. They're asking. But like a kidnapper with a knife to the throat of a victim, surrounded by the police, they're making demands. You've all seen the pictures. You know, the police are there with their guns pointed, and there's one fellow there with a little pocket knife held to the throat of the victim, and he's saying, you know, I want a helicopter and a million dollars. And the police are going, no, just put the knife down. They don't want this to... So Jesus gives them permission. Like a kidnapper with a knife to the throat of the victim, surrounded by the police, they're making demands, maybe. They're saying to Jesus, if you push us out by force, there's so much of this that we're going to hurt this guy on the way out. If you push us out, we're really going to make this guy, he's going to really regret this. Maybe. That's speculation. And so Jesus gives permission. We have no record of the man with the legion screaming or shouting. None of the regular sound effects of the impure spirits just came out of him and went into the pigs. Maybe the demons thought they'd tricked Jesus. Maybe they thought they'd outsmarted Jesus. But no, we read, instead the pigs decided they rushed down and over the cliff and they were drowned. About 2,000 in number rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. And this proves once and for all that pigs are smarter than people. Pigs are smarter than people. How do we know this? Because a pig would rather be dead than have anything to do with the devil. Pigs are smarter than Adam and Eve because Adam and Eve were happy to listen to the devil and eat the fruit. Pigs wouldn't do that. Pigs would go, no way. Rather be dead than have anything to do with the devil. We have the inspection that comes. People come. The people looking after the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind. They were afraid. People come out to see what had happened, and they're amazed to see this man. First of all, he's sitting. He's sitting there. This guy was always moving around. He couldn't be chained. He couldn't be restrained. And here now is this big change. He's actually just sitting at the feet of Jesus. He's dressed. He was always naked before, always just running around in the altogether. But here he is, dressed and sitting. And in his right mind, 
He'd always been raving before and cutting himself and hurting himself and screaming and yelling. And here he is in his right mind. And there's something unnerving about that. I've certainly, um, in, in my previous ministries, interacted with people who like to rave and yell and scream and shout. Sometimes there's nothing more scary than actually seeing that same person the next day when they've calmed down and have gotten sober or whatever and are properly dressed and you just see the complete difference in a person. And they were afraid. The crowds come up to see this and they were afraid. And the word here, afraid, is the same word in the previous chapter, terrified of the disciples in the boat. The disciples in the boat were afraid of being close to Jesus because of his power. And so these crowds are also afraid to be near Jesus. They were afraid. And they began to plague, plead with Jesus. Have I skipped a verse there? They began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. Oh, I missed the verse. So verse 16, those who had seen it told the people what happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Demon-possessed word, again, that's, that's, that's our English translation there, demon-possessed. Really, it should be demonized. The demons didn't have the man. The man had the demons. I've spoken about that before. This man who had been demonized, but now he's there, and they began to plead with Jesus to leave their region their borders, their coasts, to go somewhere else. We don't want you here. You're too scary. Their terror, their fear, they didn't want this man walking around. Because Who knows what he'll do next? And Jesus is a gentleman. Someone tells him to leave, he says, okay. You don't want me here? Okay. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. He wants to go with Jesus, but Jesus doesn't let him. He sends him home. Go and tell them your story. So he went back around the Decapolis, around the ten towns, telling everyone how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. This was an amazing story because they knew this man. He was well known in their town, in that region. He's the crazy guy who lives on the hill who can bend chains with his hands. And now he's telling him, telling everybody what God has done for him. Are there any questions this morning before we conclude? Anything from this passage that you have thoughts about or would like to ask more about? Yes. Do I, so the question is, do I think there's any political overtones here, that Jesus is striking a blow against Rome, that sort of thing? I think if it was, well, here's my answer to that. Yes and no and probably and maybe not. Uh, it's not told us explicitly in the scriptures, so we can't say that it is. That would be speculation, but I've, all I've done this morning is speculate. So maybe, maybe. But it's interesting to me, in the Gospel of Mark, the word Rome and Roman doesn't appear once because Mark's Gospel is being preached in Rome. 
to the Gentiles. It's written for you and me. It's written for the Romans. It's written for the Gentiles. Matthew's aimed at the Jews. Mark is aimed at the Gentiles. And so Mark is very careful not to criticize the Roman government because you don't knock over the ladder you're standing on. So they want peace to to persist for a bit while. They don't want to be persecuted. The time will come when the Christians are fed to the lions and crucified and all that sort of stuff, but there's no point kicking a hornet's nest unnecessarily. So yes, maybe, and probably not. Does that answer your question? No. Any other questions this morning? But certainly, even if it is a political statement, it's a Jesus political statement, which is to say it's peaceful, it's subtle, and it's and it, doesn't, it, it annoys a whole lot of people, but you can't actually say, well, he did it. Jesus doesn't throw a brick. He doesn't start a fire. He doesn't lead a revolution with grab your pitchforks and we'll go and fight the Romans. He just arranges for their food to disappear. So a whole bunch of Romans didn't get their bacon that morning. So what should we do with this passage this morning? Clicker is causing me trouble. What should we do with this passage this morning? Well, we talk about our faith fingers, the ways in which we grow in our faith, so the importance of our private devotions, the importance of having someone trusted that we can go deep with, the importance of small groups, the importance of mission, and the importance of church, the ways in which we grow in church, this, uh, grow in our faith. This morning, I think this passage talks to us a lot about mission, about going and doing something. Because we read this man went and told others how much Jesus had done for him. Jesus said to him, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And so Jesus is saying, go and tell. And I believe he's saying the same to us as well. Go and tell. Go and tell your own people how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. We have this idea that missionaries are people who travel to distant countries or travel and learn different languages or go to a place the gospel's never been heard before. And the truth is, each and every one of us are missionaries right here in our neighborhood, in our family, in our community, at our jobs. Every single one of us can point others towards Jesus and tell them what the Lord has done for us. We read in verse 20, the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. In a few chapters' time, we will read again of Jesus coming to the Decapolis. So he comes, he casts these demons out, and the people say to him, go away, you're too scary. In a few chapters, we're going to have Jesus come back through this region, and he's going to get a very different reception. He's going to get a very different reception. Because this man did his part. He went and told everybody what Jesus had done for him, what God had done for him, so that when Jesus turns up again, the people are more open to hearing what he has to say, and they come to him from all over. We'll come to that passage in a few weeks' time. But we have a part to play as well. It's up to Jesus to convince people to repent. It's up to the Holy Spirit. It's our part to be witnesses. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said to his disciples, You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus doesn't call his disciples to be the judge. 
He doesn't call us to be the jury. He doesn't call us to be the prosecution. He doesn't call us to make wise and wonderful and brilliant arguments. He calls on us to be witnesses, to stand up and say what God has done for me and for you. It's not my job to convince anyone or to argue anyone into faith. I can't do that anyway. It's not my job to take a big stick and say, repent or I'll hit you. That's not my job. My job is to say, this is who I was, then I met Jesus, and this is what he's done for me. Can you imagine this man's testimony? I used to be out of my mind. I had a thousand demons living inside me. I ran around naked all the time. They tried to chain me up, but I couldn't. And then I met Jesus. And everything is different. I encourage you this week to do your part, to share the good news of Jesus in your own way. What has Jesus done for you? Will you tell someone about it this week? The song I've chosen this morning uh, speaks about all these sorts of things. There's another Salvation Army hymn because they're the only ones I know. But this is a, a song about addiction, about um, being rescued from yourself and from fear and pride and all those things. And the second verse says, At times it's dark, dark outside and darker still within. Lord, take my hand and guide my feet, so prone to walk in sin. This morning, if you're here and you've got an addiction or something that's controlling you, if you've got a demon inside of you, you've got a monkey on your back, you've got whatever euphemism you want to use, you've got a problem, bring it to Jesus. Take my hand, guide my feet, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, this morning I thank you for Jesus. Thank you for who he is and what he has done. Father God, this morning I thank you that in this encounter between Jesus and the man with the legion of demons, Jesus wasn't worried at all. He has all the power and all the glory and all the majesty. Father God, this morning I pray if there's anyone here today who is struggling with their own demons, with their own addictions, with their own problems, Father God, help us to run towards Jesus. Run towards him and ask for his help. Father God, this morning I pray that your Holy Spirit would come and direct our hearts and minds towards Jesus, that we would run towards him with our problems, with our sins, with our struggles, knowing that he is all-powerful and he can redeem. Thank you, Father God. In Jesus' name we pray. Invite our worship group to come back to the platform and we'll sing our final song this morning. Is it a platform or a stage?